So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, December the 9th. This is episode number 187 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. My name is Frederick Dunn and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome. If you're new, if you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below and you'll see everything there. There are some links that I'm going to put down there today that will add information and give you some further research if you want to find out more about the topics that we discuss. So what's going on outside? Interestingly enough, 28.2 degrees Fahrenheit right now. What's that in Celsius? Minus 2 degrees Celsius. Hey, what's going on out in the Way to Be Academy building observation hives? What's their temperature? Their temperature is 45 degrees Fahrenheit underneath double bubble in an unheated building. What's their relative humidity? 59 degree or 59 percent relative humidity on the outside of the observation hive under the double bubble. But what's the relative humidity outside? Glad you asked. 86 percent. So there you go. You know everything about the weather right now. We don't have snow, but it could come at these temperatures. Anything could happen. Oh yeah, and a shout out right away to Johnny Walker and uh, Earl. We did uh, Hillbilly Hives stream talk last night. Thank you guys for having me out. For those of you who have never heard of it, do a quick search on YouTube and find it. Uh, I may put a link down below if I can remember. And uh, we just had a good time talking about this and that. And they show my photography and do uh, kind of evaluations of the pictures. So that was kind of fun. So the subjects that uh, we talk about are submitted during the past week, some as recent as this afternoon. So how do you submit a question? You go to thewaytobe.org and you click on the page, also titled The Way to Be. And there's a form there. You can fill it out. So we welcome all questions. Not all questions get answered, though, and that's because often they're repetitive or may have such a focused interest area that I'd much rather just directly respond to you for that. So my very first question uh, comes from Brian. By the way, YouTube has changed. They have something called handles. So now people's names have an at in front of it, and then sometimes it's just numbers and jumbled letters. So you have an opportunity to go to your YouTube account and fix your handle. So if you want to save it before other people get it. That's why mine is Frederick Dunn. So now it's at Frederick Dunn. So interesting. This is Brian. This is Brian Schlappman from Kingdom City, Missouri. And I want to thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for watching because without you guys watching, I don't think I'd even be here. Anyway, fast forward, a tree fell down and a swarm of bees was exposed. So I had to think fast. I used a 20 gallon fish tank. And lay-ins frames fit perfectly in there with a support in the middle. Then I had to fabricate a PVC pipe like yours for the bees to fly in and out of storage building. I don't think I got the queen. I can't see anything where she's at. Do you think those bees will make it through winter where I can give them a frame of brood from one of my other hives? I have five other lay-ins hives. I put, a, I put quite a bit of honey frames in there, and they seem to be doing okay at the moment. What's your opinion? Okay, this is complicated because of the time of year that uh, you hive them. So not seeing the queen, she may not be building brood right now. This is the lowest brood time of year. You're probably pretty similar to me uh, as far as weather goes there. 
I don't know exactly where uh, Kingdom City, Missouri is. But uh, if it's getting cold already, you may not see brood activity. So here's one of the things, by the way, if you can see, because it's an aquarium, it's got glass sides. If you can't get in there, and I wouldn't, by the way, so I can just answer that right now. I wouldn't steal resources from other hives and try to rescue this one because what you're really doing is weakening your other hives at a time when the resources are kind of fixed. They can't replace them. So I would favor my established hives and I would keep them as they are and just kind of see where this one goes. But if you look for those little fuzzy, silver colored, light colored new bees, those tell me when I'm looking at something that's got a glass panel on it, like an observation hive, if I can't see brood, but I see those, then I know that they'll be producing uh, some brood in there and that's kind of my indicator. Here's the thing, I wouldn't do anything except make sure they have resources and uh, then just watch them and see what they do. And because you have glass and you have an opportunity to peek in on them when you get some warm weather days, I think you'll begin to see down the line if their numbers are just going down, if they're replacing their numbers. Because worst case scenario, if there is no queen, right, um, then they will just live out their lives and uh, meet an end. Now here's the other end of that that I'm thinking about while I'm talking. Um, if they are broodless, this is also a great opportunity. I don't know if you have the equipment to do it, but if you have the safety gear and you have oxalic acid vaporization capability, this would be a great time to go ahead and treat them. Last thing you wanna do is have a colony that's queenless, just degrade and be loaded with mites and then potentially get robbed out by other bees on some hot day, and then the mites get out and go to another hive. So you have an opportunity to knock mites down, but I wouldn't weaken another colony just to keep that one afloat. So I'm sure people can comment down in the comment section if they've got other opinions on that and suggestions, things you might do. Comments are always welcome. If you have a link that's associated with your comment, or if you're trying to show me another YouTube or something like that, those automatically get held. That's not like you're being singled out. Leave them, and eventually when I look at it, if it's a related link, um, then it gets released and other people can read it. So be patient, it takes me a while. I'm not always on um, YouTube. So anyway, this one comes from another handle, at VYTBBB7146. See, that's what YouTube did. It says, okay, Fred, now tell me, if bees that collect nectar do not have mites, then how the HE double hockey sticks, those mites, get to the hive? In that theory, robbers don't have mites either. So who brings them? That's actually a really good question. I know the way it's worded. Uh, the person here is probably frustrated thinking that we're putting out bad information, but you may wonder about the context of this question. And so this is why I think it's worth answering. I was talking about feeder stations last uh, week on the Friday Q&A, and I said that because I had this opportunity while they were cleaning up uh, the end of the year frames that were crystallized and otherwise you couldn't extract the honey, so I just put them out on warm days for feeding stations. And then I decided to do mite counts on those bees. And predictably, I didn't get any mites, and I did several mite counts on those bees throughout the day. So then the concern here is that, well, then how do they go from hive to hive? It's a very good question. And mites are complicated. And if you're new to this and you're like, what, what, are we, what kind of mites? What are we talking about? We're talking about 
a parasite on the bees known as the Varroa destructor mite. And these things parasitize Apis mellifera, our honeybees. Now they didn't start out that way, but that's where they're at now. Apis serrana used to handle them and everything was okay, but now they're here. So the question is, when we have these mites, how do they reproduce? How do they get around? And how do they spread from one hive, one colony to another? And this is what often makes people concerned when they have a, a new beekeeper in their vicinity that says, yeah, I got my bees and I'm just not going to treat. I'm treatment free and I'm just going to let them live or die. And that's kind of a Darwinian philosophy for keeping bees. But I think these people often skip over even what Dr. Seeley says, who put out a whole paper on Darwinian beekeeping. Um, it doesn't mean you just let them die. It means that if you're treatment free, that you monitor, that you find out if they are becoming overwhelmed with mites and you actually have to euthanize a colony that gets overwhelmed with mites if you're not willing to treat them. And then you're stuck with just colonies that make it on their own without the mites. So anyway, with mites, but they survive and they're resistant. So it's a very complex thing. So the other thing is the Varroa destructor mite is very complicated. They're very sophisticated and they're blind. So uh, we had Dr. David Peck here talking about mites a while ago. I think that might have been last year, early this year, actually, we did an interview with him. He's a mite expert, worked with Dr. Seeley. But the thing is, they, they travel by pheromones. They find their host by pheromones. So when the Varroa destructor mites are reproducing under the capped pupa inside the hive, there's a lot going on. You'll never see a male Varroa destructor mite scooting around on the comb inside your hive because they only exist inside the cell where they are reproducing. But it's the first egg that that adult Varroa mite, what's called a foundress mite, the first egg that she lays hatches out, that's a male. And after that, it's females. And that male mates with his sisters right there. Sometimes these larger cells, like those with drones in them, get uh, multiple foundress mites together. And so they even have more than one reproducing inside there. So the working it out, you know, the calculus of how many mites you're going to have ultimately is not always simple. The other thing is, uh, because they're pheromone-based, their targets are nurse bees. So when the bees go out there and uh, when the mites emerge, uh, they scoot around. And by the way, there's a change in terms. We used to call this the phoretic phase. Like phoretic mites are exposed. They're out of the cells. They're on bee bodies. They're tooling around on the comb. And uh, today, that is called the dispersal phase. In other words, they're dispersing. They've come out of where they've reproduced and they're spreading around. But they need a host and they need a host pretty darn fast. Which host do they go after? And this ties in with this kind of frustrated question that I received. If the foragers in the mind of this person would be carrying the mites and therefore they would spread to other bees, and one of the reasons I did that experiment is I wanted to find out for myself and then share with others. Remember, it's a very fundamental experiment. Are they potentially transferring mites forager to forager at a feeding station? And uh, it's not that they couldn't at all, ever. In fact, that's almost impossible to say when it comes to honeybees and things associated with honeybees. You can't say it would never, ever happen but it is very unlikely. 
And that's why I went into open feeding at a time of year when we have a dearth and when bees are prone to robbing out weaker colonies, overwhelming them, getting all their stores and resources, that activity is where the risk is. Because let's say, well, let's backtrack a little bit. I found no mites at the feeding station. A feeding station at the time of dearth draws off bees that would otherwise be potentially robbing out your colonies back in the apiary. So we're kind of redirecting them. Now let's go back. If you had a varroa destructor mite on an adult bee and it left the hive, what is that mite's incentive to get off of that adult bee, which is literally its life support? And then take a chance that it can clamor from bee to bee. Now we've seen this video sequence that was done for scientific study to show how agile a varroa destructor mite is, and the mite is shown on a flower. And this is under controlled conditions. They put a mite on the flower. The mite didn't like, you know, a forager didn't land on the flower, the mite jump off, ends up on the flower, the forager says, see you later, and flies away, and then another honeybee lands on the same flower, then the varroa mite clambered onto it. The entire video sequence is, there's a mite on the flower, here comes a bee that lands on the flower, the mite scoots up onto the bee, and then the bee flies away with it. But that, see, is very rare because they don't often end up on foragers, and why would they leave the body of the forager and park themselves on a plant where they could just die? They're only good for, by the way, even the experts don't agree, there's a span of several hours that they can live without a host, up to four days without a host. But either way you look at it, the likelihood of foragers carrying mites to begin with, and then for the mite to leave a forager and transplant itself onto another forager, extremely rare. But this is one of those areas where you're gonna be able to go down in the video description and click on a study that will explain how these mites react to pheromones inside the hive, because they're blind, they smell their way around. So here's what happens and here's the risk and how they spread. Uh, the people that, and why I mentioned the, the natural beekeepers are just let them go, die or live. And if they're overwhelmed by mites, what are they gonna do? Uh, well, they're gonna spread disease. First of all, the bees definitely will. And the diseases can be spread flower to flower, by the way. And the varroa destructor mites that are occupying the bodies of these bees are killing the bees. The bees are dying out, the colony is ending, and what happens to a colony that can't defend itself? It's getting robbed. So remember, some of the states, which used to be the phreatic state, now it's a dispersal phase, these mites are clambering around on the comb, and that's when the comb, getting robbed by other bees, may pick up a host, and then you've got what's called mite farming, some people call it mite bombs, and things like that. But if the colony is unhealthy, and in decline and headed for failure, the robbers now can pick up those mites when at the end of the year, just as you're going right into winter time. And this is also why a lot of beekeepers that are treating for mites and counting mites and things like that, uh, they can also end up right at the end of the year, just going into the cold period when they should have low mite numbers, because after all, they did all these great treatments and all of a sudden they get some measurements on one colony and their mite numbers have exploded. So a couple of things could have happened to uh, cause that number of mites to increase. 
One is the number of bees in the colony would be getting smaller going into fall. Therefore, the mites have fewer bees if they're present to congregate on. So now we have multiple mites potentially on single bees or more bees get mites on their bodies. The other side of that is if a colony is dying out at the end of the year, getting robbed at the end of the year, which really happens often, then the healthy colonies are robbing those colonies and therefore not only do they come back with mites on their bodies, but even some of the bees in the failing colony come back with them. It's called drift and they end up in the new hive. And then where do all those mites go? Right to the critical part of your hive, right to the brood area. So the studies that I hope you'll read down in the video description, it shows that the mites actively seek out nurse bees. Everything inside the hive is pheromone based. And there's a pheromone that nurse bees have that foragers do not. So when the mites are in their dispersal phase now, and they're looking for a host and here comes a forager. Ah, it doesn't smell right. Don't like that. And then the tool over here, here's a nurse bee. Smells great. Great nutrition and everything else. Soft body and they latch onto them. So they've also showed that the mites actively seek nurse bees, young bees inside the hive. Not freshly emerged bees, however, but those that have matured a little bit and they're doing nursing duties. Because remember your first bees that are coming out are doing cleanup duty and things like that. The nurse bees are a tiny bit older and they're nutritionally superior. The other thing that they found out is they're also repelled, these mites as they're cruising around, by the type of royal jelly load that gets put in on a developing queen larva. So we know that they all start off on royal jelly, all the workers, all the cast, but of course the queens that are selected to be developed get more royal jelly over an extended period of time and superior nutrition, but there's something about the composition of that that actually repels the varroa destructor mite from wanting to get in there. So first of all, we know that queens uh, don't pupate as long as workers and drones do. So they're also not appetizing for that reason, but it's a pheromone rejection. So there's a lot going on and I hope that helps to explain some of why I said what I said about uh, the foragers at a feeding station not being a great place for varroa mites to transfer one to the other. So I still think it's a very safe thing to do to provide open feeding if all you're worried about is the transference of varroa destructor mites to other colonies at that station. The real risk is in failing colonies, failing hives that are um, not cared for and the varroa mites are jumping ship there. Then you can get the mother load and get a domino effect throughout your colony to all the strong colonies that are doing the robbing. So I hope that was helpful. Question number three, Sean from Iowa City. I'm a second winter beekeeper with 18 colonies. Following your methods for hive setup, including three eighths inch by two and a half inch entrances. Morning walk bee inspection found an entrance reducer pivoted so that one end was in the hive and the other was sticking out. I pushed it back. The next morning I found the same thing on two hives and chewed plastic disc and on a nuke. So no mice my first winter, but now I'm certain that deer mice are pushing at the too small entrance and moving the wooden reducer. Set a couple of traps and caught a deer mouse on top of the hive 
made some tighter fitting wood reducers, and will replace the chewed entry disc on the Nuke. Here's my question. When should I fix a mouse-proof entrance on? Day or night? I don't want to seal them in if possible. Other ideas about making sure the mouse is out before sealing, rather not take hives apart here in zone four in December. Good idea, don't take the hives apart. And uh, I have a huge advantage because I get to watch these mice acting on the hives, jumping all over the place, trying to get in, thwarted by that three-eighths of an inch. That's right, just remember B-space. B-space is three-eighths of an inch. If your entrance reducer is only three-eighths inch high, inches high, the house mouse, which is all gray, can't get in. And the deer mouse, which is tan on the back and white on the underbelly, they can't get in either. So, and they're persistent though. They'll go out there and chew at the entrance and they'll do everything they can to try to get in. So the question is, um, when should I modify the entrance if it looks like one might have gotten in? Well, on these warm days, I think we've got some warm days coming here. I don't know what's going on there in Iowa City. But if you get daylight temps, and I think the activity of the colony is more critical than the actual temperature. Because what the mice can't handle is bees are moving around inside the hive because they're going to come after it. They're going to sting it. They're going to get it out of there. So what the mice tend to do is when it's a warm day, they scoot out of there before sunrise. And they're out foraging, jumping around, getting under humus and stuff like that. And then at night, after sunset, when the temperatures start to drop and the cluster is forming up and there's no more bees on the landing board, the mouse scoots in. And then they spend the night there. And if winter sets in for good, because the mice are also dragging in grass and other stuff like that, it's very rare that a mouse just gets in there, sits in a corner and hunkers down and hopes for the best. They tend to kind of nest build in there. If you've got a slatted rack or something like that on your hive, uh, then they build under the slatted rack and they're trying to uh, benefit from the protection of weather and also the secondary warmth coming off the cluster. So if your bees are actively going in and out, if you've got foragers, they're doing cleansing flights and stuff like that, then that's a time when you can be 99% sure that the mouse is out of there. That's when you close things up. And uh, some people may be concerned, well, what if they have baby mice in there? This time of year, and again, this is going to be averages. I'm not saying it could never, ever happen, but mice are trying not to uh, reproduce this time of year. They tend to do that in spring or when resources are out there, just like the bees. So the mice are foraging for food all night long. They're pretty nocturnal, too. And they scoot in there in the daytime unless the bees are awake and mobile, and then they're scooting out. And the speed that a deer mouse can cover ground and leap from the ground onto a stand onto the front of a hive and check things out is astonishing. So I'm glad you caught one. That's the fun part. Uh, you end up catching a lot of them. Uh, the best way though is of course to find out that they can't get in the hive and then just let them scoot around and run anywhere they want to. Uh, they're all just looking for cover. So I have, I have a YouTube that's called I think it's the best mousetrap or whatever, but it's my box of certain death. And what that is, is just a wooden channel and it's got a wooden cover on it and it's got a little inch and a quarter diameter hole at one end and a little inch and a quarter diameter hole at the other end. And what's inside this box? A whole series of mousetraps. Now I put those inside buildings. It's kind of unfair to put those outside in your bee yard on the ground because 
mice naturally are seeking shelter. They're finding these little tube areas and they would go in there and it's not called a box of certain death for no reason. They, they go in and they just don't come out. Um, they just don't make it. It's too well designed. But the thing is, you want to put those in your garage, your basement, your wood shop, places where they're a nuisance if they get in. I don't think it's fair to set traps out in nature, in the environment, where they're just looking around. It looks like a hollow log to them for all they know, and they just go in and get killed. So it, that mouse wouldn't necessarily have been trying to get into your hive. They're just all over the place. And this is the year of the mouse here. But anyway, you see the bees moving on a nice warm day. That mouse is not in that hive, I'll bet you. And go ahead and change the entrance at that point. Moving on to question number four. Dustin from San Antonio, Texas. And happy Friday back to you. It says, I have several Ape of May hives, but this will be my first winter with them. You point out often the best practice of cleaning out dead bees during the winter. What is your plan for this with the Ape of May hives this winter? My thought right now is to open the entrance in the middle of the hive to make sure they don't get blocked in the in and deal with the dead bees during the spring. I may also consider taking a bee vac to the entrance of a few and see if the vac can clean out the dead bees without causing too many issues with live bees. Okay, so the ape and May hives, this is my first winter with them. So I don't have a lot of experience with it, but I do have a wooden dowel rod that's 3 16 in diameter. And for those who don't know, the Apame entrance uh, has, has a mouse guard on it. You don't get the option to have a mouse guard or not, or have it open or closed. Uh, it has sliders, but there's all these little arches for the mouse guard. And I just plan to stick the dowel rod in there. And if there's any chance that there are dead bees piled up against it, we'll just be pushing them out of the way. Now, later in the winter time, your cluster is going to be up. And what's mentioned here is above that entrance, there's a little control wheel on the front of the APMA hives, and it has different settings. So you can open that and have an upper entrance there. And that way, if there were a bunch of dead bees piled up at the bottom, then they could still fly out of that. But if I didn't see a bunch of bees piled up at the bottom, I don't think I'd open that upper entrance. I don't think it's necessary. The bee vac is an interesting idea. And again, this year I'll be using a endoscope to look inside the hives. I'm going to be running that through my um, hive gate units. It fits right in here so I can see what their blockage is. So this year I'm not even pulling these out to clear out the dead bees because last year none of them were plugged all the way. So I'm going to be sticking that in there and taking a look inside and then looking up into the hive. I don't expect to see much bee action up here from that little camera and that tiny lens that's on it. And it ha also has a 90 degree lens so I can look at angles. But uh, all I want to verify is that this is clear and open and then I'll be pulling that out. I may or may not share the videos about that because it might not be very interesting unless you know find something really cool or can see all the bees and see the way they're clustered or something. But uh, yeah, the bee vac is no problem too. Just vacuum up right at the entrance there. Probably wouldn't be bad. But I would try to find some way to look in there. And definitely you want flashlights or something like that. Bring an inspection mirror, reflect sunlight through that entrance. You'll be able to see very easily if they're blocked up or not. But yes, yeah, my first year with them. So my plan is just to push them back out of the way. And then of course on warm days when other bees are flying, although 
I'm glad I'm thinking about this right now. Um, some of the insulated hives don't fly right away. So don't use flying as much of a judgment call on activity inside that hive. Uh, my uninsulated hives fly right away when we get these warm days and the sun's really bright. Today the sun was really bright and uh, so it would warm the south facing uh, side of the hives. And uh, you get more activity out of those hives. Well, the insulated hives can appear dead, but they're in there because you can listen to them and you hear them humming. So I think the apame hives are going to be slow to forage on these rapid warm-up days. And so looking at landing board activity is what I'm getting to may not be the best indicator about their health and ability and whether or not they're struggling with dead bees at the entrance. But definitely check them, make sure, and give us feedback if you find something cool. Question number five comes from Grayson in uh, Alabama. What do you recommend beekeepers do about winter moisture? That is such a broad question. I almost didn't put it on my answering thing. I do have a link on wintering with bees, but here's what I'm doing right now this year, moisture. Moisture, well, moisture is not a problem inside beehives, even if you're not vented, unless you're also not insulated. So what I'm doing, so this is my configuration, I have solid bottom boards or bottom boards with screens that are enclosed with trays under them. And then I have slatted racks. So there's a spacer there. Gusty wind doesn't come up. If you don't know what a slatted rack is, see if I can pull one out without making everything fall apart around here. Slatted racks, this is the bottom. Your bottom board's here, this goes on top of it. Your brood box goes above that. They have this solid piece of wood across the front. That prevents a lot of gusty wind and everything. Also, bees pile up on top of it. But if moisture were trickling down the sidewalls on the inside of your hive, this slatted rack also creates a space. Now, if this was a solid bottom board, moisture would go to the bottom board and then, leads me to the next part, your hives should be tilted slightly, it doesn't have to be a lot, towards the landing board. Also, I hope that your hives are facing south or southeast. It's a little better. Doesn't guarantee your bees will die if it's not. They just tend to do better if it is. So then you've got your brood box. All your joints are nice and tight. I only have the single entrance at the bottom. When you get to the top, instead of your standard wooden inner cover, I have an insulated inner cover. It also, it has a plastic casement. So it's made by Be Smart Designs. They're selling them at Better Be. Other places, I'm sure they sell them on Amazon. It's the Be Smart insulated inner cover or they may call it the ultimate inner cover or something like that. I used that last year. No condensation forms over the cluster. So if we're talking about water management, the goal for me is not to get rid of it. I do not want to see a 40% relative humidity inside a hive. That's actually too dry. Um, what we want is for the moisture to accumulate on the walls at the dew point slightly under the cluster where the bees can access it because they need to hydrate. Where we don't want it to form is directly over the bees on the inner surface of that inner cover. So if it's a non-insulated inner cover, you need a vent up there. 
because now we have cold air coming to that surface. If you've got a metal capped telescoping outer cover and that sits right onto that thin wooden uh, inner cover and there's no insulation, then you've got cold air up there, which means you've got warm air coming off of your bees, hitting that cold interface, creating condensation, and where's it located? Directly over your bees. That's why if you have that configuration, yes, you need some kind of top vent to keep some air moving away from there. Now that also means that your bees have to generate more warmth because they've got a constant flow of cooler air coming in from the bottom and exiting the top and they can't stop it. So my preference is a single entrance at the bottom, no cold interface directly above the bees because now it's insulated, therefore a heat capsule forms and that heat capsule doesn't bleed off through any openings at the top and therefore there's no condensation above the bees because the dew point is not achieved there. The other thing is, where are your hives located? Moisture, humidity. Uh, all my hives are 18 inches, 16 to 18 inches off the ground, out of skunk range. This is beneficial for your bees if you live in snow country, because now when your bees leave the entrance, they fly out, they're a little bit up in the air. They don't dive bomb immediately into the snow. So if you've got hives sitting on the ground those hives at the bottom have higher humidity situations, higher humidity conditions. The snow banks up against them. And when there's a big melt off, it doesn't melt off and away from the hive. It melts against the hive and the ground gets wet right there. And there your hive sits in wet. So you have humidity issues when your hives sit on the ground. That's why I tell all the people that are mentoring and people that are listening that if they'll just consider Maybe there are advantages to getting your hives up off the ground so even there's free movement of air underneath. Food for thought. So, and where your hives are situated, you want to make sure you're not in a wet area. So a lot of things contribute to moisture inside your hive and we want to keep it out. And that's how I do it. So, oh yeah, and size your hive correctly for the population of bees. You're gonna have moisture problems if you've left four or five boxes stacked going into winter, thinking you're gonna save all of that honey for those bees. They cannot control that environment at all and they're not trying to. They're trying to control the warmth in their cluster. What's the size of the cluster? Could that fit in two and a half boxes? Then that's all you need. If your cluster occupies one and a half boxes, you should not have four boxes on your hive going into winter. You just shouldn't because the areas above and beyond your bees, everything's going to get cold at night. Even with the passive warmth that's going up there, the risk of attaining the dew point on capped honey above your bees exists because there aren't enough bees to fill the space. Therefore, the space is oversized. Therefore, there's more condensation up there in these unused, unoccupied spaces than they otherwise would be exposed to. And that's because we're creating hives that are much larger than honeybees would normally occupy. Thanks to the work of Dr. Thomas Seely on sizing your hives. So, my, so what size is it? Mine are single deeps with a medium, rarely a double deep, and the double deeps would be the eight frame boxes. And then my triple deeps are five frame nucleus boxes. So five over five over five. And that's because those colonies are pretty big in there and look at the very controlled space and the heat goes straight up and those are insulated and there's an insulation cap over the top 
And again, condensation forms on the sidewalls, not above the bees. There you go, question number six. I hope I'm not moving too fast. This comes from Ed Swart from Winona. It's got to be Maine. So it's bee box building time. As a beekeeping carpenter, great skills, by the way. If you're gonna be a beekeeper, you got carpentry skills, you're way ahead of things. I build my own hives and like you, I enjoy experimenting with design. I built some upgraded Langstroth boxes and insulated Long Lang observation hive similar to the hive design of Hyde Hives in the UK. My favorite. His favorite, that's what he said. Anyway. Right now I'm building a unique Lance hive, but what I'm really curious about is the interesting Ukrainian hive designed by Vasil, oh man, Vasil Pratilenko. See the YouTube videos of Dr. Victor Versov. Now, Dr. Victor, he subscribes to me, used to comment a lot. So actually, I'm glad that you mentioned him. And have you seen these innovative Ukrainian beehives? I would appreciate your opinion of it and maybe one of your fancy drawings too. Well, I'm not going to do a fancy drawing of it because what I like to do is give a shout out uh, every Friday. And today it's going to be Dr. Victor Fursov, F-U-R-S-O-V. And uh, it looks like it's similar to a lance with the deep frames, but he's got mediums. And what's different about the way his hives are set up, and he's in Ukraine, so I figure we should support some people that are in Ukraine. I've always wondered what their beekeepers are doing and how they're handling everything that's going on there. So I'm going to provide a link down in the video description to his video that shows, by the way, a lot of his videos he doesn't speak English on, so I'm going to give you a link to one of those where he does speak English and he does explain his hives and his philosophies, which are in contrast to a lot of beekeepers I know. And that's not bad. It never hurts us to listen to someone else's method of managing their bees. And the reason I wouldn't personally build a hive the way that his is configured, it's so unique. Um, you know, the frames wouldn't be compatible with other you know, hive designs here. That's kind of our, our trouble when we get into beekeeping here in the U.S. and we get excited about all these different hive designs. Unless they have a lot of standardized gear that we can kind of interchange from colony to colony, which makes it very convenient, now we've got a unique situation over here, unique situation over here, and you end up with a lot of specialized equipment that uh, you can't buy other stuff for. So if you like different feeders and, and inner covers and things that are made by all these big companies, they won't be compatible with some of these very unique designs. But I think it's great to hear him out and watch his video and maybe say some positive things because we know people in Ukraine can certainly use uh, some positive energy over there. So what better place than to go to Dr. Victor Fursov, F-U-R-S-O-V, and tell him we said hello and wish him well with his bees and maybe find out what's kind of going on there. He was in Kiev. Um, I looked at one video on 24 November. He was walking around in Kiev just kind of showing uh, what things are like over there. So he's going to be my shout out for today. And you can look at that and I'd like to hear your own opinions about it. Uh, what's different is the bottom box is like a medium sized box. And it let's say all the frames run this way. The next box is a deep a very deep box, much like a lance, and then the frames are set uh, 90 degrees. 
to one another. So it's an interesting configuration that I've not seen before. So I want to thank Ed for bringing that out and also for supporting uh, Dr. Victor, by the way. So tell him he said hello. Look for the link, please, down in the description. And we're not done yet. So usually I do that at the end, but I just wanted to let you know ahead of time that's going to be the shout out. So the next thing here is um, from Jose, St. Petersburg, Illinois. I have read and heard that only two hives are needed to pollinate an acre of almonds. If this is true, do you know or have you heard of someone that was able to do a test? The test would be two hives, one acre of almonds, monoculture crop that had cover crops year round. Did that enable just two hives to thrive? Okay, so this is kind of a conflicting thing. So this is from Jose. Um, it is the standard if you look at, I have connections with the almond, uh, not the growers, but the buyers and sellers, the number crunchers from uh, Blue Diamond Almonds. And uh, we're talking about, I just want to kind of give the big picture. The reason that honeybees are brought in to pollinate the almonds is because it's a monoculture and it does not support bees at any other time of the year. There are a lot of California beekeepers that migrate their beehives to pollinate almonds. Just to give you kind of the sense of scale we're talking about, in 2020, they produced more than 2.96 billion pounds of almonds. And I'm gonna, there's more to this. It's very complicated. I went way down the rabbit hole today. And if you're somebody with a lot of extra time on your hands, this is also why I'm late in giving today's video and getting it done. It's because I just got so involved in all the different things that are impacting the price of that colony of bees. Grading a colony of bees that gets approved to go into the almond orchards so that they can pollinate them. And then what dictates the price? They're there for six weeks. It's the first big commercial migratory pollen operation in the US. There are more than 70% of all commercial beehives in the United States end up in California for that six week almond pollination season. And listen to this. One of the ways that they work out the pricing of everything, first of all, almond growers. Now, I'm not quoting anybody that works for the company I mentioned. Um, almond growers are looking for, big surprise, the biggest return on their investment. Depending on honeybees to pollinate is partially a gamble. You don't know if all the pollinators necessary to manage the scale of the almond orchards in California, you can't guarantee they're gonna show up. You can't guarantee they're gonna make the grade. They don't know when some next big issue other than the Varroa destructor might, might impact the availability of pollinators for their orchards. Now it's a big deal because how do they price it? So the first, they have to forecast what their market's gonna be. So they have to know what the almonds are going to be sold for and traded for. Futures, you know, 
So people that invest in that stuff, they want to know what it's going to cost. What about water right now? They have water challenges. One of the ways that they're going to offset that is they have self-fertile almond varieties, and they're trying to expand that. Self-fertile um, doesn't mean that they don't need honeybees. It just means they need fewer honeybees. So they're going to, if you, if we're almond growers, we're going to work on the things that, that require less dependency on the honeybees. How do you attract honeybee keepers to bring their hives in the numbers necessary to pollinate that enormous crop for just six weeks out of the year? Well, if they're going to get honey somewhere else, the price of honey can compete with what they can earn going to the almond orchards. So for example, if their bees can go somewhere else early on, the advantage of the almonds is, and why most pollinators go there, there's nothing else to be pollinated at the time. I also found out that um, prunes are kind of an overlap there, but they don't get a lot for pollinating prunes. So here's kind of, this is, this is the interesting part that I learned. You're paid a lot for pollinating almonds, and that's a variable thing. So, how many bees are in a hive? Do your hives make the grade? How many hives are you bringing? Blah, 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 on and on. So, the thing is, you'll find out that things that they're pollinating, the commercial pollinators go to, that have a higher yield for the beekeeper. In other words, if it produces a lot of nectar and a lot of honey and really good quality honey, and there's a honey market that that beekeeper factors in, you'll find out that those uh, companies that require that pollination don't pay as much as almonds. Because when you go to almonds, you're not coming out with a huge honey flow out of, off of it. So in other words, you're not coming out of there honey rich. So now you're not kind of double dipping, earning from the pollination service, but at the same time benefiting from an enormous honey crop, which is what happens with some of the other uh, pollinator assignments or contracts that go on later. So those people that know that their plants are going to provide a huge nectar flow for those beekeepers and the beekeepers are going to get a bunch of honey uh, to sell from that, then they don't get as much uh, for the pollination services. This is complicated. But the self-fertile, they also need cross-pollination. So in these orchards, you see there'll generally be a row of one type of almond, then a row of another, then the one type, then another. So it's zebra-striped. So they need cross-pollination. Interesting. And uh, yeah, two colonies per acre was the standard. And uh, let me see if I... Almond acreage is increasing. Also, I heard a story, rumor, of course, that the demand for U.S. almonds might be reducing. Uh, and therefore, of course, the price of almonds will go down, which impacts, of course, commercial pollinators because everything else has a trickle-down effect. And if you're migrating, if you're bringing in your bees from out of state, trucking, transportation, all of these things change your liabilities as a pollinator, commercial type. Keep in mind, not a commercial pollinator, don't know anything about it other than what I read and the people that I talk to that are in marketing and buy and sell for these big companies. So you would be talking to people like Randy Oliver, who is a commercial, you know, beekeeper, and I know he's going to the almond uh, orchards. He talks about it all the time. I'm sure all of our big, you know, in the state of Pennsylvania, we talk about Hackenberg. He's one of the big migratory uh, pollinating contractors. And I know that he's going to zip out there too. So, but they're all going to probably keep their profits and, and uh, earning ability pretty close to the vest. They're not going to really 
want to talk about. Everybody negotiates their own contracts uh, with the growers and, of course, the orchard owners. But we're talking about huge money, vast expanses, the variability of weather. Not only that, this was interesting, too. If they get 100% pollination of the almonds, that means bees have to visit every single flower that's going to produce fruit. 100% pollination gets them 40 to 60% fruit set. Man, that doesn't sound very uh, efficient to me. But uh, that's it. Several bee visits required and uh, two per acre. Two good colonies. That's it. Now they could probably negotiate if you had you know, super colonies or something, but the almond growers definitely want their almonds to produce. They care about the bottom line, period. Question number eight comes from Carl Robinson, Danville, California. Do your nukes, supers, line up on your better bee nuke boxes? Can't seem to find one that lines up. Well, no, they don't line up. <laughs> so. I've talked about this a lot. This is what I buy these from Better Bee. This is my nuke box. They also sell, because this is, of course, the bottom, and this is where your brood everything starts. This particular one has a fixed solid bottom board on it. You can get them where all of them are open, so they're all supers, and then you put them on a small nuke bottom board, but that costs more, and I like the idea that these don't come apart. And these have worked really good for me for as long as I've had them. Now they end up being, when you get the supers for them, they're the same length. So they match front and back. What they don't match is the width. I don't know why. They're all coming from Better Bee. You would think they would be from the same company. But this leads me to something else. I'm not buying the supers anymore from Better Bee. Where am I buying them? I'm not. I'm making my own. Here's what I don't like. See these handholds? Every time I do a thermal shot of a beehive, any of them, these are hot spots. These handholds are so thin. By the way, even with a three-quarter inch piece of pine, we're still under an R1 for insulation factor. So when you've got these handholds, we just gave up and created a cold spot on the inside of your hive right where the handholds are. And you see them and look where they are. By the way, these come with screens on the back. Let's look at the inside. See that screen right there? They come vented on the back. I don't like that one bit. So I put a block of wood and why does it stop there? Because the migratory cover lays over that and marries up with this. Now, if I add a super on here, I have to block these holes too because I don't want air flowing through the front and out the back, especially in wintertime. Now I realize they're not designed for winter. That's how I'm using them. These are supposed to be temporary. These are nucleus hive boxes, but they're not temporary for me. These are my permanent resource hives now. So, um, no, they don't match up, but I'm making my own because they're easy to make. And instead of those cutouts for the handholds, by the way, that is an extra fabrication step on every single hive box by every single company. I don't care if it's Dayton, Man Lake, Better Bee, whoever's making them, then they cut away these handholds. I don't like them. 
I just want to put a one by two on there, glue it and screw it on and have handles. Or B Smart Designs makes those little grommets that go on there and you have these little handles that you can take off and you just have little buttons on there, but you don't have to cut into the hive and reduce the material thickness just to have a handhold. So those handles, I should actually link that. There's handles by B Smart Designs that uh, you can eliminate that. So if you're making your own boxes, earlier on we had one of the people write that you know, you're doing your own carpentry and stuff like that. I don't like the handholds. What's the purpose of them? Why are they made that way? I'll give you a minute. Why are they cut in like that? I'll tell you, so you can stack all your boxes right up against each other without a space between them. So I don't need that. I don't do that. I'm back here, beekeeper. So I want to attach my handles and you can even cut them at a little angle so that when there's water running down, it doesn't pond on top of your handle. You can put a 20 degree angle on your handles and have a grip and a runoff at the same time. I like that. I also like, uh, I've never done it. I probably need to make a video about uh, be smart handles with the little buttons that go on. And then uh, use the same handles on any of the hives you're moving and then they can still go right up against each other with just a gap of about that, whatever the button distance is. But those are good. That's it. Um, Mine actually seal though. I mean, they don't match exactly, but there's no open airflow. They can uh, propolize those and seal them up fine. So I haven't seen air leaks. I don't like the vents in the back. I wish I could, those are money savers. By the way, if better bees listening, there's no point in having screens with drilled holes in the back of those nucleus boxes. There isn't. We don't need handholds, especially on a nuke. Look how little they are. We just grab them and pick them up. We don't even need handles at all. So I hope somebody knows somebody, Dr. Peck, somebody, a decision maker over there. And then at the end, oh, it says, would be great if those nuke boxes had a little extra room on the bottom to handle a swarm cell. There again, another vote, build your own. So there's no room for a swarm cell down there. So swarm cells, if they didn't have room at the bottom, of course, they'll just put them along the edge of the frame. But if there was a little space under there, that wouldn't hurt. So why not? I agree. Have a nuke box, the bottom, the first box, be just an inch or so deeper than it currently is. But again, more material, more cost. We need to make this stuff ourselves, I think. But they're, they're a good company. I mean, I don't know. Man Lake, super hard to get a hold of decision makers at Man Lake. But companies like Better Bee, Blythewood Bee Company, uh, places like that, they respond right away. So if you've got suggestions and ideas for improvement for brood boxes and stuff like that, uh, you can let them know. I do. I tell them stuff. Nothing changed, but I tell them things that I like. Okay, so Carl's was the last question for the day. Now we're in the fluff section. There was something I talked about yesterday that I wanted to speak about. What did I do? I dropped everything on the floor over here. One of the things I'm doing for kicks, by the way, so this is just for fun. This is copper plate. This stuff is, this is pretty thick. What I'm doing is, this ties into the deer mouse problem. 
I got these on eBay. You can get them anywhere. This is 99 point something pure copper. I cut these in half and I'm going to cut a 3 8 7 inch segment out of the bottom and then I'm going to mount these to the front of my hives where I see evidence of mice chewing at that entrance. And then it will get dark with age. It'll have a little copper patina and it'll kind of look cool. Is it necessary? No. It's just fun to do. Copper is soft. You can cut it. You can work it. This is this is really dense stuff. If anybody wants the link to it, let me know. I'll get that for you. The other thing I was talking about during the uh, the interview I did with Earl and his friends there, I have taken down my bear fence. Now, I cannot tell you to take down your electric bear fence. I'm just going to share what I'm doing. If you do what I'm doing, disclaimer, you accept 100% risk. I live in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania. I'm in bear country. We have black bears around. My hives in the past have been raided by black bears. But I get tired of my electric fence, and that's because weeds grow up, you have to pull it. I was using poultry netting at one point, solar charger, I had a solar charger that would run a 30 mile line. I'm doing noisemakers. So this is the noisemaker that I'm using. These are cheap. This is from Amazon. You can Google it yourself. Uh, I want to explain why I chose this one though and I'll tell you a little bit about how it works. Not only that, if you look at the Amazon uh, listing for this particular one, they're using, they didn't even ask me, they're using my video to sell their product. I was gonna get mad about it, but then I noticed the video says right on the screen, Frederick Dunn, so I'm okay with it. Why did I pick this one? It has a solar panel on it. A lot of them do. So there's a lot of choices. That's why I'm talking about it. I'm also going to talk about the risks. On the back, it has a little port so you can charge it up initially. After that, this has to face somewhere south so that it stays charged. I only set these up to run at nighttime. What's it do? Flashing light. Does a flashing light keep stuff away? No, it won't. Nothing cares about a flashing light. Bear shows up, little red flashing light comes on. Here, I'll show you what it looks like. One flash, that's the first setting. Two flashes, second setting. Three flashes, that's what I set it on. That's nighttime only, and that means when something moves around, it goes off and flashes like that, and then there's an audio part. The audio part is all I care about. Because I talked to the Game Commission guys, and we look at bears and everything else, and I like to see what they're doing. It's the noise that bothers the bear. So the other thing is, these go off when a rabbit goes through, or a, sometimes on a deer or mouse, not always. So it's not that sensitive. But what I do is I you know, put these on T-posts, and we have these fiberglass posts that some people use for poultry netting and stuff like that. And there's a hole in the top. I just run a zip tie through that, zip it to the poultry uh, post, and then that way I can move it anywhere I want. Pull it out if I'm mowing or something like that. Um, but they go off. What does it work on? I haven't gotten a bear to come anywhere close. How long have I been doing it? 
I've had these out and I've had my electric fence completely relaxed for the last two years. This is a long test. Why? Because I don't want somebody to do what I'm doing, have it fail, lose their bees, and then be like, Fred told me to put this up and it would scare things away. So, scares fox for sure, chases away raccoons, possums flip out about it, they don't even know what to do. Possums just act like they can't figure out what direction the sound's coming from and they ping pong all over the place because how many of these are in my bee yard? 15 of them. So, they only come on at night. If you had this next to your house, you would probably just go nuts because every time it goes off, even though this is way in my bee yard, I actually hear them when they start coming, going off. That can be a good thing because if I know, when I hear something, I also have cameras out there. So I pick up my phone, I look at the cameras. Oh, it's a, oh, it's a skunk. So it gives you an opportunity to respond. These aren't gonna call you, right? So if you have cameras or something, then you can see how the wildlife behaves around it. The deer move on. Deer are pretty smart, but uh, they'll put up with a little noise they don't like suddenly jump and run away when one of these goes off but they just graze on and walk away they don't want to stand there and hear it deer remember want to hear if another predator is coming towards them that's why often deer on super windy nights move out into open fields because in the woods on a windy night something could be sneaking up on them and they wouldn't know it so everything doesn't like noise and particularly if i had a white light for example that was a motion detector and a floodlight comes on, bears have walked right through floodlights, especially if they're smelling honey or something, they'll go right after it, they don't care. Bears hear very well, and they don't like this noise. So that's why, by the way, this one comes with a remote control. I don't care about it. I don't care that I could go out there and push a button and do a setting with the remote control, so why did I buy this one? Because what I care about is on the back here, and this one, We'll do 128 decibels. Where is that? That better be on here. 129, I was wrong. So if you look at that box right there, 129 decibels, that's what I wanted, the loudest one. Because I found out that others were like 90 dBs or something. Um, keep in mind, they're gonna get rained on. It's gonna be snow, there's, there's gonna be challenges. Some of them don't hold up. Some of them, moisture kind of builds up in the back. So, but that's rare, like one in 10, maybe that does that. And uh, if you look at this configuration, the shape, <clears throat> I think they're all the same. What you really want to look at is the decibel rating, but that's what I'm doing, that's what I'm using. So far, so good. So I want to thank you for watching me today. I hope that you're going to have a fantastic weekend and that your bees are doing great. Thank you for spending your time with me. Take care.